scripture, would you please just acknowledge it by saying, our God is excellent. And let us read what the scriptures have to offer us from Acts 28, 17 through 31, the inerrant word of God. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar." Though I had no charge to bring against my nation, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak to you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. And some of them were convinced by what he said and others disbelieved. And agreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes, they can barely see, and with their ears, they can barely hear, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcome all who came, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. This is the final scene in the book of Acts, and it's clear that Luke wants to do three things in this final scene in the book of Acts. Number one, he wants to clarify the central aspects of this whole book. Secondly, he wants to place in context everything in the storyline that goes all the way back to chapter 26 that brings us up to where we are today in chapter 28. And then we see, thirdly, he wants to make a final lasting impression about the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ when it's received and also when it is rejected. I think it's amazing that Luke chose to end his work in Acts here by showing the issues that the Jews had with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see in verses 28, 1 through 15, kind of a friendly response coming from various Gentile and Gentiles and also an encouragement coming from Christians along his way. And then we start to see what we pick up 
this morning where we see in Acts 28, 17 through 20, Paul, he's given a report to the Jews concerning the challenges that he has dealt with over the last two years. And then as we move to Acts 28, 21 through 27, Paul lays out for them all of the required facts that one might need to understand and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, but yet these people in front of him, the majority of those that he's pleading with and that he's proclaiming to are rejecting it. And then lastly, in Acts 28, 30, or rather 28 through 31, he focuses on the Gentiles because the Gentiles will listen and receive this salvation. But at the same time, he doesn't give up on his brother Jews. He represents the gospel to them at every opportunity that he has. Here's Paul. Although he's been rejected by his own people, he's been restricted in his ministry by imprisonment, he's been hindered as he awaited trial from the Romans, but nevertheless, Paul welcomes all who comes to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching them about the Lord Jesus Christ. He recognizes that those who have ears to hear will listen. Will you pray with me this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in a posture of praise, proclaiming your goodness and thanking you for your great provision for all of us. With great humility, we bow our knees before your throne of grace, offering to you the praises of our lips, with our tongues set on fire by your great mercy that has been shown to us. We lay down at your feet all of our concerns, all of our circumstances, all of our cares, because we know that you care for us. Instead of bringing you our complaints, we are concentrating on your grace and your goodness toward us. Instead of looking only at our challenges during these times, we are consumed by the knowledge of your provision and protection toward us. And we want to confess it before an unbelieving world that you, O oh God, are our hope. You, O oh God, are our strong tower. Oh God, we need you. As the psalmist says, every hour we need you. We thank you for being a very present help in the time of trouble. We love to call your great name and we love the fact that you hear us and that you respond to us and that you are reforming us into the very image of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, oh God, please accept our praise and accept our proclamations, and continue to give us perseverance as we give you gratitude for your gracious provisions toward us. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said amen. We find ourselves this morning at the end of the book of Acts. We've been through it verse by verse, precept by precept. And we find out that there are three scenes left here in the ministry of Paul. And I want to pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. We see that Paul continues to be a prisoner of the Roman government. He's closely guarded by one single soldier, and he's given the freedom to welcome various people to his quarters that they might discuss the gospel. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And what he wants to do here is summarize uh, his trial and summarize what he's gone through going back to Acts 21 all the way up to 26. He gives the Jewish leaders here a report, just the facts, just the highlights of the things that he wants them to remember that he's gone through. Look how he addresses them in 2817b. Paul says this, Brothers, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our father. He says here, he's claiming that the Roman authorities recognized the fact and considered him innocent of any 
charge deserving death. He appealed to Caesar, but he never did it with any concern or any accusation against his own nation. In fact, he understood and he constantly told them then, as he's telling them now, that his mission and his imprisonment are really, if you look at it in the right view, acts of loyalty to Israel. Acts of loyalty, high pastor, because he is saying he is preaching the hope of Israel, and that's the reason that he's bound in these chains. He's bound in these chains because he's preaching Christ and him crucified. But let's, let's back up a moment. Let's look at 16 with a little more intensity here. We recognize that Luke now starts to include himself in the narrative. He talks about when we got to Rome, and he turns to focus on Paul's situation. He remained a co-worker and friend with Paul while Paul was in prison. We see here that Paul's allowed to live by himself with only one soldier to guard him. What an incredible relaxed form of detention. He's not in prison. He's not in a military camp, but he's allowed to live in a rented house. Being guarded by this single guard this God would have been rotated all through the cohort. And that's why Paul can write without fear of contradiction in Philippians when he says that the gospel of Jesus Christ became known uh, throughout the whole Praetorium Guard. That while he was in prison for Christ, chained by his wrist, he took every single opportunity to speak to every single God about Jesus Christ until... They relented and no longer allowed guards to even guard him because he was turning so many of them to Christ. During our time of lockdown, are we reaching out to every opportunity we can to testify about the goodness of Jesus Christ? The scripture goes on to say only a short time that he called together the local Jewish leaders. He took the initiative because he wanted to get out in front. He wanted to forestall any opposition, any antagonism that would have followed him from his journeys in other places. And also, and I think that was secondary and this is primary, he wanted to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jewish community while he could. We recognize that he was an important figure in the Christian movement, and being that he had arrived in this city, it would have caused some concern for the local Jewish leaders. So he wanted to gather them together first and let them know that they had nothing to fear for him because he was operating as the very hope of Israel. He's been arguing this point all the way back to Acts 21, that the reason that he was under arrest was theological and not political. So you see how gracious he is and how he deals with these leaders when he calls them together. He addresses them as my brothers. And then he tells them that he has done nothing against his people or the customs of his ancestors. He implies in the same context that he's been arrested for nothing that's worthy of arrest and that he was handed over to the Romans. Now, don't miss this parallel here that Luke sets up. He shows us that there's a parallel between the trial of Jesus Christ and his incarceration and the trial of Paul and his incarceration, he introduces it by this phrase, handed over, delivered into their hands. Look at Luke chapter 9, verses 44 through 45. Luke chapter 9, verses 44 through 45. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. Remember that phrase. 
and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. When we look at what Paul says in Acts 28, 18, speaking of the Romans, they examined me and they wished to set me at liberty. They wished to let me go because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. Look how this lines up with the narrative when Pilate is speaking about Jesus. Luke 23, 14 through 16. And, say, and he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. If you listen closely, you can hear the echoes of Jesus' trial here. They rang true and they reinforced the portrait of Paul as being a true follower of Jesus Christ. We see Paul here facing the same kind of rejection. We see Paul here dealing with the same kind of suffering. We see Paul here uh, not being released even though there's no reason to hold him. We see Paul here not guilty of any crime deserving death. And yeah, I think it's reasonable to assume that uh, the Jews were afraid and they offered up their disdain. They did whatever they could to make sure that release did not happen. Look at Acts 28, 19a. But because the Jews objected, the Jews objected the same way that they objected with Pilate when he declared his intention to release Jesus. The ultimate blame for this is put squarely on Jerusalem. And then Paul says, I look at Acts 28, 19b, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. He was compelled to appeal to Caesar because to keep them from turning him over into the hands of the Jews. Remember what happened back then. Felix delayed his release because he hoped the Jews would offer him a bribe. And then later he delayed his release because he wanted to get a favor from the Jews. And then he passed him on to Festus and Festus delayed his release because he wanted a favor from the Jews. And then Festus was going to turn him back over to the Jews. And the Jews had already decided they were going to kill him on the way back. So all was left for Paul to do then as a Roman citizen. He had to appeal to Caesar and to go to Rome. He didn't want to be handed over. And Acts 28:19c says, Though I had no charges to bring against my nation, Think about this. Is this not Jesus? Jesus is on the cross. And he says, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. Even in the midst of great turmoil and persecution, Paul does not want to bring this charge against his nation. He recognizes that such a move against a countersuit against the Jews for malicious persecution or prosecution would have been a serious consequence for them. And then you see clearly in Acts 28, 20b, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this change, he wanted to expound to them over and over and over, God got me into this. And God will get me out of this. Because I want to teach you about the resurrection and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment to what you are looking for. Look at Acts 26, 6 through 8. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. To which our twelve tribes hope to obtain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O kings. 
Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? You know, they had a problem with this whole idea of the resurrection. And he says, if you really believe in the one true God, why is it so incredible to you that God could raise the dead? Either, even after all the opposition that Paul has received, you see that he's a true believer. Paul still believes that there is hope for Israel. Look at Romans chapter 11, verses 26 through 29. That's Romans chapter 11, verses 26 through 29. And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Look how he speaks directly to the issue here. As regards to the gospel... Speaking of the Jews, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And listen to this last part. For the gifts and the calling of God is irrevocable. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Where are you going to run to? Where are you going to hide? Does David not make it clear? If I go to the highest mountain, you are there. If I go to the deepest darkness in the valley that is like day to you. If I go to Sheol, you are there. If you call my name, I'm coming. Sooner or later, but I'm coming. Paul wishes to explain that he's a prisoner not because of anything that he's done to violate the law, but that he's upholding the law of God by preaching the gospel to every creature and every nation. He wants them to know, I'm a faithful Jew, and this is what all Jews should be doing. I'm a messenger who's proclaiming the fulfillment of Israel's hope that is found in Jesus Christ, and that I am suffering for it because you refuse to believe. The Jewish leaders responded to Paul's argument by saying this. You look at 28, 21. They said to him, we have, not re- we have received no letters from Judea about you. Letters had not arrived because of the difficulty of the winter. The Sanhedrin Uh, hadn't said anything, nor had they dropped the charges against Paul, recognizing that he was a Roman citizen, and they would not have a good chance in proving their case against him, so they just fell silent. And then look at 2821b as he goes on to say, or they go on to say, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. They've got negative reports about Christianity. They're going to mention that in just a moment. But isn't it amazing how God has protected him and no letters have come and no verbal abuse have come saying anything negative about Paul, the one that they hate so much? And then it goes on in 22. And now you see they're willing to hear him out. Look what it says. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, and the sect they're pointing to Christianity, and with regard to this Christianity, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. The Jewish leaders express their willingness to hear his views, and they place no obstacle in his way to speak to them or to speak to large members of the uh, community. Yeah, they had, a, they had some concern about his theological implications. They had some concerns about his loyalty to Christianity, which was obviously divisive when it came to the Jews. And it said that everywhere people were talking against this thing called Christianity. Yet God wanted Paul to reach out to these Jews 
with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God had prepared Paul to do that and given him the provision to fulfill what he has called him to do. I don't know if you recognize it or not, but God has a way of providing what you need when you need expect it. He can provide, he can provide what you need when you least expect it. There's a story about Abraham Lincoln, who was once a country store owner in Illinois. And he's on the front porch of his store with his partner, Barry. And business had gone to heck. And Barry asked Lincoln, how much longer do we have to keep this up? And Lincoln answered, I don't know. It looks like the business is failing. And then Lincoln continued and said, you know, I really wouldn't mind so much because really this is not what I want to do. And Barry said, well, what do you want to do? Lincoln says, I want to study the law. And I wouldn't mind if I could sell everything in this store, pay off all my bills, and only have enough money to buy one book. And Barry said, what book is that? He says, Blackstone's Commentary on English Law. If I can buy that one book, I could teach myself to be a lawyer. Just moments later, a strange wagon pulled up to the store, and the driver angled it toward the front porch, and he spoke to Lincoln and said, I'm trying to move my family out west, and I'm completely out of money. I don't really have anything to sell but this one barrel, and I could sell it for 50 cents. Abraham Lincoln's eyes went looking along the wagon to see if there was any other things of value he might be able to purchase. He really wasn't interested in the barrel, but he saw this man's wife, and he saw how gaunt she was and how thin she was and how emaciated she was. He felt compassion, and he reached in his pocket and took out which was his last 50 cents. And he says, I guess I can always use a good barrel. And he bought the barrel. Barry chided him all day, you know, why do you got that worthless barrel? It's been sitting out front all day where the people come to the store. Nobody's interested in buying it. Lincoln finally went out, inspected the barrel for the first time, looked down in the bottom of it, and he saw some papers, but the papers looked like they were bound in something. So he reaches down and picks it up. And what does he have in his hand? Blackstone's commentary on English law. Later, when he was president, he wrote this. I stood there holding a book and looking up toward heaven. There came a deep impression upon me that God had something for me to do. And he was showing me that now he gave me the tool to be ready to do it. You see here, God is showing Paul his desire to use his life as a book to be read in the proclamation of the gospel to the Jews. Though his life at this time in imprisonment may have seemed like he was at the bottom of the barrel, but we recognize that God can use all of his tools for his purpose. This salvation of God was rejected by the Jews. You see, Paul answered God's call to present the gospel to the Jews, but he also warned him of their reply, their rejection. He does this by reminding him of, of a forceful quotation from the book of Isaiah. Now, this quotation from the book of Isaiah is the longest biblical quotation in the book of Acts. It begins with this unusual statement that is preferenced by the divine authority of the Holy Spirit so that if anyone challenges this statement, it's going to be knocked down by the fact that the Holy Spirit is the one that is saying it to the prophet who is saying it to us. He tells us here, if we really look at the text, that there are certain other parallels to Paul's experience here with the Jews, especially in Antioch. And both times, they build up this case against the fact that they will reject the truth when they hear it. Look at Acts 13, 42 through 43. Acts 13, 
42 through 43. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them at the next Sabbath. This is Paul preaching in the synagogue, right? When he was still allowed to preach in the synagogue. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who they spoke with them, urging them to continue in the grace of God. Now, you're going to see that the second encounter brings resistance. Look at Acts 13, 44 through 48. The next Sabbath, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Remember in the first part, they begged them to come back. They were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was being spoke, uh, spoken by Paul and reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Think about your own life. Have you thrust aside the word of God that is the only thing that has the power to condemn your behavior? Have you considered by thrusting those things aside what God has to say about anything that you have made yourself unworthy of eternal life? That now because of your deaf ears the gospel is being turned away from you? So we see here that the Lord is telling us that he has made us a light for the Gentiles that brings salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul recognized that he would have to do this. Look what he says. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they begin what? Rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. If he calls you, you're going to answer. As many as were appointed to eternal life, believe. You see, the stress of the divine mandate to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And then you see the second example emphasizes the rejection of God's message and God's messenger. But look back at Acts 28, 24a. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging. They came to Paul at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God. Large numbers flocked in to the place where he was staying. He couldn't preach in the synagogue anymore, so they couldn't meet him there, but they came to a place where they could hear him. And what did he do? He witnessed testifying to them about the kingdom of God, which was fulfilling the prediction that he dealt with in Acts 23 and 11. Don't you remember what happened to him in Acts 23 and 11? The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. Remember, he thought he was going to be killed, that he would never make it there. But the Lord ensured him, you've testified about me here, and I have made an appointment for you that you will not miss in Rome. Secondly, look at 23b, trying to get, convince them about Jesus. I love this. Trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law and all the prophets. Think about that statement. If he's preaching to them about Jesus from the law and from all the prophets, 
He's preaching to them about Jesus from the Old Testament. That totally nullifies anyone that can tell you that the Old Testament is irrelevant. The Old Testament speaks of Jesus. The New Testament is concealed in the Old. The Old Testament is revealed in the New. You need all 66 boots because they speak of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he's persuading them about Jesus through the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, and then all of the prophets, the entire Old Testament. They're interwoven, my friends. Look at Acts. Acts 20, 24 through 25. Paul speaking. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom of God will ever see my face again. I tell you, it's, it's a, a pleasure and an incredible encouragement to stand before you each Sunday now, not knowing if I will stand before you next Sunday. It puts such an emphasis on making sure that if you never told a whole, tell the whole story now. Because the clock is winding down, there may be a scroll that rolls up and we won't know it. But you won't, you won't be able to say you did not hear it. You can be able to say you did not understand it. You won't be able to say you did not see it. But you can say you did not perceive it because your heart has been changed by the Lord who's kept it from you. This expression from morning till evening shows the, the intensity of his preaching. All day long, he preached to them. And what does 24 tells us? Some were convinced by what he said and others would not believe. That's the challenge of every Sunday. Some will hear you, and some won't hear you. And when I said this, this is not to show any lack of compassion, but your focus should always be to preach to those who hear. It is God that gives people ears to hear. You just tell what they need to hear. They disagreed among themselves, and they began to leave the service. And Paul had this final statement that he needed to make. I want you to look at Acts 28, 25 through 27. Acts 28, 25 through 27. And disagreeing among themselves... They departed after Paul made one statement. Here's the statement that ran them out the house. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I will heal them. So he comes and gives them that the Spirit spoke well about you when he prophesied and gave it to Isaiah. That you would reject Isaiah's message and you would reject Jesus' message and you would reject Paul's message. Because you did not have ears to hear or eyes to see. 
But even in this, you notice back in Isaiah 6, 13, he gives the prophet, even though he's telling him about the coming judgment, he gives him uh, a reprieve here to let him know there will be a remnant that will hear you, my friend. Isaiah 6, 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like the terabith or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The tree falls, but the stump remains. That's the remnant. That's the 10% that will hear him. And think about how challenging this would be to Isaiah, was to Isaiah, and it should be to every gospel preacher. Go and tell the people this. You, but recognize they won't hear you nor understand. They won't see what you're saying nor perceive it. Now, we recognize in the physical, of course they hear unless they're deaf. But if they're spiritually deaf, they won't understand. Of course they see unless they are physically blind, but also if they're spiritually blind, they will not be able to perceive. And why? Because these people's hearts have become callous. What does it mean when something becomes callous? It becomes hardened. It's impervious to the pain or the impact of feeling that it should have. He says they can hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. And he's saying this is not the gospel that has deafened them to the truth. This is not the gospel that has blinded them to the truth. It's because they've grown so dull. And I think they've grown so dull because we have not fed them the word of God. And they're so male, they're suffering malnutrition. And they're in such a place that they can't even receive nutrients anymore because we have just dulled their system. So what does it take now, Pastor? It takes humility. It takes repentance. And even in this prophecy from the Holy Spirit, what is the way out? Look at the end. Otherwise, they may see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts. So if they hear, if they see, if they understand, what will be the result of that? They will turn. They will repent. And then what will I do? I will heal them. It looks like a rhetorical argument, but no, this is God's desire that they may see, they might hear, they might understand. He puts it out there as a mocking challenge because he knows really how dull their hearts are. But Paul then comes back with a challenge of his own to conclude verse 28 in Acts 28. Verse 28, chapter 28, this is what Paul says. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Let it be known. I want you to know. This is a declaration here. He does it in the aorist tense. It's in the indicative mood, which means that it's a past action without further limitation or implication. He wants us to know, or rather here, he wants those Jews to know that God has sent his salvation and now it's gone to the Jews. There's a promise in Acts 13, 47. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvations to the ends of the earth. God is sending his salvation to the Gentiles as an accomplished fact. But don't, don't, don't misunderstand. There is still a mission to the Jews. There is still a mission that healing and salvation could come if they would turn 
and believe. Look at Romans 10, 19 through 21. Romans 10, 19 through 21. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all the day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Look at the long-suffering of God. His long-suffering with them, his long-suffering with us. Paul understands that all of this is to make the Jews jealous and to provoke them to find the hope of Israel being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Simeon has a statement in Luke 2, 32-32 when he sees Jesus for the first time. And he says this, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So this salvation is for us both, right? The unsolved problem of Jewish rejection can be reversed through the reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Paul's mission is, even though the Gentiles have received, he still is supposed to represent this to the Jews. Paul is turning to the Gentiles. This does not mean total abandonment of his ministry to the Jews. Though uh, rejected by the synagogue, though rejected by the Jewish leadership in their unbelief, and though rejected by many who gathered to hear him, Paul continues anytime he can on an individual basis to encourage and encounter the Jews with the gospel of Jesus Christ making it relevant to Jews and God-fearers so that he might speak directly about the expectation of the kingdom and of Jesus Christ as their promised Messiah. Verse 30 says that he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came. He's there for a full 24 months, and he's in a rented house, and it's at his own expense, so he's raising money through those who are coming to see him for his accommodation there he's responsible for this and during that time only a privileged few could rent a house so maybe he was even in a room but for two years under house arrest he kept seeking to preach the gospel of jesus christ to those jews and gentiles who had ears to hear And he does this with the complete surety that God will make it happen, that he can open eyes and that he can give uh, ears the ability to hear again. He doesn't make any distinction between preaching and teaching because he understands the kingdom of God, that they both have the same agenda but he expounds to them testifying of the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. There's a parallelism here. His concern was to proclaim the realization of God through the enthronement of Jesus Christ on the right hand of God as Messiah. And he did it with all boldness and without any hindrance. Here, when they talk about hindrance, they're talking about a legal hindrance. They did not stand in his way, but allowed him to preach the gospel fully. To me, I think it's very interesting as we look at the last verse of this particular book of Acts, 
that it really takes us back to his, one of his retellings of his commission and his charge to do what God has called him to do. Look at Acts 26, 15 through 18. Acts 26, 15 through 18. Here's Paul on the Damascus Road. This is probably, I think, the third retelling of his Damascus Road story. Not in its entirety. We're just looking at 15 through 18. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your own people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now he's going to tell you why he's sending him. Sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. New Life, I think, Paul's call is our call as Christians as well. That in all circumstances, we have been called that we might open the eyes of the blind, that we might open the ears of the deaf, that we might preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, that they may turn, that they might repent from darkness and go into the marvelous light, that they may be released from the power of Satan into the power of God to receive forgiveness of their sins through the power of the gospel. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love you and praise you. Lord, build us up on every leaning side that we may answer your call fully. Remind us every time that we are weak, every time that we want to sit down, every time we want to throw up our hands, let us recognize that your calling is irrevocable. That it is something we must do as Jesus must go to Samaria. We must go into an unbelieving world and sharing the good news of your Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen.